Amen. That's why we can't. All righty. Let's let's open up our Bibles and go to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And this evening we want to minister from verse 20. We'll take that as our main verse. But the title of the message is Revival and Riot in Ephesus. Revival and Riot in Ephesus. And we pray this message would be an encouragement. Acts chapter 19, notice verse 18 through 20. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts, that's magic, black magic, brought their books together and burned them before all men. They counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now, Father, as we minister this, speak to all of our hearts clearly and give us something to think about throughout this week. Lord, let our hearts be revived as we hear the word of the Lord tonight in Jesus name. Amen. I can always remember as a young man when I first got my hands on John Wesley's letters and journals, how fascinated I was by this man's travels in Great Britain. It's amazed me that he could get up on horseback and just gallop throughout those nations preaching Christ, preaching in homes. And this man put men and women, boys and girls to work in the kingdom. And the revival that he was a part of was so great that I honestly believe it kept back apostasy from that area for probably at least 75 years to 100 years. He had so many people going into the nations preaching Christ. It reveals the power of the gospel and it lets us know that if you want to really change an area, to change a region, you have to change families one person at a time. Paul gives us a similar example, a much older example in chapter 19. When we look into this particular episode of his life, you find that this really is a chapter worth reading. First few verses, people are baptized in water, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Verses 11 and 12, you've got special miracles, demons cast out of people. You even have the imitation where people are trying to cast devils out in different names and it not working. And then, of course, the witches brought all of their books and had a great bonfire. The word of God was so mighty that even a riot broke out because a man of God had come proclaiming the word. Now, what's of interest to me in looking at this is that sometimes God takes one city or village or town and makes that the theater of his power and also of persecution. That is to say, he'll take one particular region and stretch forth his mighty arm to showcase his ability and his might, but also to attract the adversary that comes to bring problems. And throughout the Bible, you can find certain cities that were like that. Jerusalem is one of the most prophetic cities in the Bible. 
But you know Jerusalem is also a place where God did wonders, but it's also a place where many of God's people were persecuted. Prophets died. Somehow or another, when the power of God is falling like rain, the adversary comes to try to resist that. I think of different towns historically. London was a great center of power for Spurgeon as he preached for nearly 40 years to congregations of 5,000 people or more. Long before there ever was what people called a mega church, he had that and he had it for four decades. But the persecution against him was great. I think also of what God did in just a few hours south of us in Topeka. Bible college students, 120 years ago, sitting in an upstairs room, beginning to read about the Holy Spirit, and God poured out his spirit, and people began to speak with other tongues. Think about Azusa Street over in Los Angeles, led by a man named Mr. Seymour, former slave. That man would stand there with the chicken crate over his head because he did not want himself to be the one who seemed like the visible leader of what God was doing. And people came from all over this nation and around the world to Azusa Street to learn about the Holy Spirit. Every major Pentecostal denomination in America had leaders that came out of that particular movement. Well, God takes the city sometimes and uses that city in a powerful way. I'm thinking now of Dallas, Texas. There was a man from Utica, Nebraska named F.F. Bosworth. And that man moved down to Dallas when there was no spiritual life, no power at all, and put up a tent with his brother and other people. And for months they prayed, sought God, wanted revival, wanted the touch of God to fall in that place. After a few months, it did begin to fall, and those people in that area started persecuting them. They'd come and undo the tent pegs. They'd come, stand around, and call them all kinds of names. But Mr. Bosworth had learned that God was a healer, and he had read a book called The Acts of the Holy Ghost that had been written and published by a lady named Mariah Woodworth Etter. And so when he got hold to that book and saw what God was doing with that young lady, then he wanted her to come there to Dallas. Well, Mrs. Etter was born in 1844 in Lisbon, Ohio. When she was 13, she became a Christian. She had a vision of her standing in the midst of a big field full of grain. And as she began to preach, she saw the grain falling down before her. And a voice said to her, you'll see people fall as you travel and preach my word. Well, she got married, had kids, and then pretty soon, because she hadn't moved into the ministry as God had told her, in her late 20s, she had another vision. And Jesus came to her and said, when are you going to preach? And Mrs. Edder in that vision said to Jesus, how can I preach when so many people don't believe that women can be used of God? He said, when are you going to go preach? And she said, I'm not qualified. I don't know the Bible. And then she said she saw a Bible that appeared on the side of the wall and the words were highlighted, and suddenly she understood it clearly. 
And God spoke to her and said, go. Well, if you know anything about her ministry, you know that from the late 1870s to 18 to 1924, she traveled across this nation and had all kinds of wonders taking place through the preaching of the word. They say that when she would minister, folks would fall out under that tent and lay there for hours and have tranches. I was reading one of the some of the newspaper articles of her in Ainsworth, Nebraska, years ago when people that were born deaf, dumb and crippled were being healed by the power of God. And then her meeting was shut down because of a plague in 1918 or so that broke out in this region. But all across this nation, that woman traveled with her team and they saw the power of God fall. She knew that wherever she went, God was going to be real in the one place as he was in the other place. Now, here the Apostle Paul comes to Ephesus. He's under the impression that God is going to do something wonderful. Now, what is it that caused Asia Minor to be set on fire by this one man? It's because he taught the word. He ministered the word of God. He did not go in there preaching Roman and Greek teachings. He wasn't quoting poets and all of that. He wasn't interested in Plato and Aristotle. He came in there with the message of Christ and that message changed the people that listened. Now, in the previous chapter, he had gone into Corinth in verse one of chapter 18. And you can see that by verse 11, he stayed 18 months. He was there so long, made such an impression that in verse 12, there was an insurrection. The people revolted. But in their revolt, he continued to preach. Why did they revolt? Because of the fact in verse 13, he persuaded men to worship God contrary to the Greek and Roman law. That man came in there with a message that cut through all the paganism. He made it very plain. There aren't two ways or 10 ways to heaven. There's one. And his name is Jesus. He taught people that if you're going to be right with God, you're going to have to understand genuine heartfelt salvation that only comes through God's son. Well, the persecution was great. But as you can see in verses nine and 10, Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision and said, don't be afraid and don't be quiet. He said, I'm with you. Nobody's going to hurt you for I have many people that are in this city. Now, we have a tendency to think that when we launch out to do the things of God, that we're the only ones. But God always has a remnant of people that believe just like you. And Paul, in preaching the gospel, understood this, preached a form of salvation that was exclusive. There's no other way to God except through Christ. Now, you know as well as I do, that message doesn't always make a lot of friends. But back during the Reformation, they made it very plain. You're not justified by your worship of other gods or by your own works, but you're justified only by what Christ has done in his accomplished work on the cross. Now, the Reformers said it this way. In 1619, in one of the Augsburg Confessions, it says these words regarding justification. Men cannot be justified before God by their powers, merits, or works, but are justified freely for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and their sins are forgiven through Christ. 
who by his death has satisfied for our sins. And this faith is imputed to us as the righteousness of God. The reformers knew that Jesus had Paul preaching this message in Ephesus and it turned the world upside down because he was a conduit of a singular truth. Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. There is no other. That man became a lightning rod for difficulties, but he stayed right there despite all the troubles. And Acts chapter 19 says that for 24 months, this man preached the word in the school of somebody by the name of Tyrannus. How long would you have stayed if trouble came your way? How long would you remain if trouble came your way? Many times preachers, if they don't get along with a handful of people in their town or church, they call for a U-Haul and they're ready to move. A whole lot of people go to work at different organizations and places. And if things don't work out, then they're looking to move and to run from trouble. But as a Christian, then we understand that Paul comes to this region expecting God to be the same in Ephesus as he was in Corinth. Have you ever expected that? Have you ever left one location, went to another location, desiring God to be the same God there that he was back here? You've got to know that whether you're in Germany or in Brazil, it's the same God that's with you. Whether you're in Hebron or whether you're on the West Coast or East Coast, it's the same God. Paul comes here. He opens up his mouth and begins to proclaim the word. And in verse 10, it said this continued by the space of two years. So that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, being both Jews and Greeks. Now, I believe that in order for there to be genuine revival, you know, a coming to life again amongst God's people or some kind of a time of refreshing, there are several things that are needed. Number one, there has to be a burden for God's word. If a man or woman doesn't care about God's word and won't respect God's word, then they're never going to be able to be in the midst of a revival. You have to honor this word enough to change your life, because if you ever come into contact with truth and the word of God confronts your behavior, you now are left with just basically one or two options. I can either embrace this truth and conform, or I can reject this truth and remain as I am. But if you reject it, then your own opinion becomes your God. And you organize your own life around your own basic opinions and beliefs. But if the word of God is primary and not secondary, revival can come to you individually. God can change you. But then secondly, there has to be a burden for prayer. There are a whole lot of people that have prayer uh, requests and people in their life that need prayer, but they want everybody else to do their praying for them. But think about it. If you have people in your life that need help from God and need God to do something supernatural, why wouldn't you pray? If you've got unsaved loved ones, why wouldn't you pray for a period of time? After all, if, if it's important to you, it's important to God. When was the last time you spent a half hour in prayer for somebody? How long has it been since you spent 15 minutes praying for something that you say is important to you? Because if you won't take the time to do it, then why would God do it? 
I've thought plenty of times as a pastor, if God can't move me to spend time with him in this book and in prayer, why should he move the hearts of people to come listen to what I have to say? But if somebody has a burden to pray, then things happen. And God pours out a spirit of grace and supplication. Then before you know it, a church has a prayer chain. People are getting together to talk about God. People are considering that if we're asking God to intervene, we have an expectancy for something divine or supernatural. The whole purpose of prayer is to ask God to do for you what you're not capable of doing for yourself. But if you're your own God, you won't pray. A burden for God's word, a burden for prayer, a burden for souls. To know that just like Paul, we're dealing with people that are lost, people who are unfulfilled, people who don't understand the way of God perfectly. You have to begin to see everybody as a soul that needs to be saved. That cash register attendant isn't just a cousin of yours. That's someone that needs to know the Lord. That person that you live next door to isn't just somebody you shake a hand with across the fence and talk with them about gardening and everything. That's somebody that needs God. And when a burden is placed upon that heart, then God can then use you to minister to them. If you live in the midst of people you don't like, then you're not going to want to witness to the people you don't like. The only thing you're going to want to do with the people you don't like is stay away from those people that you don't like. But if you realize that the love of God is shed abroad in your heart and that love covers a multitude of sins and you will have a burden for lost souls. Pastor, what does it mean to be lost? I mean to be alienated from God and separated from the Lord in the sense that on the other side of that last breath, there's an eternity without God. Do you realize that as we have been in here worshiping tonight and sitting here listening to me talk about the word of God, if the Lord could scrape back the elements here of the carpet and give us a glimpse into hell, we'd see millions of people that would love an opportunity once more to respond to a gospel message. Once more to cry out to God because they've got all eternity. Now, we tend to avoid thinking about that agony and that anguish and the pains of people that are in hell right now. But I'm telling you seriously and fervently and passionately that people that are lost without God, they need to hear the truth of the gospel. People tell folks today, you've got to be positive, inspirational, be like a mentor or a coach. Ephesus didn't need that. They needed a God-anointed man. They needed Paul to come with the gospel in his lips and to proclaim the truth of the word of God. And when that word is proclaimed, great things begin to happen. Notice here in verse number nine, different people heard him and their hearts were hardened and refused to believe. And they spoke evil of that Christian way before the multitude. The folks turned against Paul. They didn't want to hear what he had to say, but he was not intimidated by the environment because he knew he was bigger than them all. He knew that his Christian life was stronger than theirs. He knew that he had a message that could change them. 
And so the power of God was so great, as you can see here, that the people who were witches and warlocks heard that message, were convicted by the Holy Spirit and brought the things in their homes to the center of town or in the outskirts of town. And they made a big pile of it and set it on fire. That's when you know a revival is taking place. When you begin to reform your life, your possessions and your home. You turn your backs on things that are wicked and evil so that Christ can be manifested in a powerful way. And unless God really gets a hold to us, how can we call it revival? A man went to a church one time to preach. Had one time been a great church, had several hundred people, but it dwindled down to no more than maybe 20, 25 or so folks. He got up and preached hard, starting on a Sunday night, three or four nights, tough. And his wife said to him, said, honey, you, you're preaching kind of hard to these people. I mean, this was back in the 1950s. said, when, when are you going to pour in a little oil? I mean, you, you're going to hurt these people. And he said, look, I'm doing the best I can. He said, these people are stiff-necked and hard. He said, the old axe head is bouncing off the trunk of the tree. They're not even hearing anything I'm saying. Well, the wife said, well, you, you need to do something because you just can't stand up here and just minister to these folks like you're doing. He said, well, I'm doing the best that I can. A few days later, she said to him again, Daddy, when are you going to pour in some oil and some wine? You're wounding and hurting these people. He said, look, I'm doing all I can to try to move these folks and nothing's happening at all as I preach the word. Well, he told his wife, he said, well, you've been on my case. So he said, look, Sunday's communion. I preach a good communion message on the blood that Sunday morning. Well, Saturday night after the service, he laid there in the bed. Four o'clock in the morning, Sunday, God woke him up and said, you won't break bread with anybody till you break it with me. Well, he knew what that meant. He had to go to church and pray. So he said to his wife, you bring the babies along in a few hours. I'm going to the church, lay in that altar and talk to God. He laid in that altar and prayed. Somewhere around 6.30 or so in the morning, God spoke to his heart and said, your message this morning will be 1 Peter 4.17. He got up, went to the Bible, flipped the pages, looked to see what it was, and it said, it's time now that judgment must begin at the house of God. He looked at that. He said, oh, my, mama's not going to be too happy about this. Well, that morning, a few more people come out with the original core group. He said it was just the strangest thing. He said he got up, he preached. He said it was like somebody turned on water on a spigot. He said it came pouring out of him for an hour and a half. He said he dealt with stuff you never would have thought anybody would have had to deal with in a full gospel church back in the 50s. He's dealing with adultery, drunkenness, incest, all of this. And he said it was almost like he was standing beside himself, looking at himself, shocked that he was preaching all of these things. But he said when he got to the end of the message, as quick as God turned it on, God turned it off. And he said, he said to the deacons, now it's communion time. He said, deacons, come on down. Nobody moved. Silent. He said again, deacons, come on down. Get us ready for communion. Nobody came. Well, of course, by, by now, he's trying to figure out what's going on. His wife's sitting on the front row holding his two children. She's got her head down, eyes closed. He's looking at her, trying to motion to her, get up, get the kids out of here so we can leave. And if they owe us anything, they can mail it to us. But she never did look up. So he then looked back, the two chairs on the platform, one for the pastor, and then one for the guest speaker. 
And you know how if somebody's sitting in a chair, you turn, you're expecting in your peripheral to be able to see them sitting there. He didn't see anybody in that chair. He finally turned around and looked. That pastor was down on his belly underneath that chair and he was groaning. And so that, that visiting preacher didn't know what to do. He got down on his belly next to that pastor. He said, Pastor, I'm calling for the deacons. They won't come. He said to that evangelist, you have killed every one of us. And, and that, that, that visiting preacher, he said, well, pastor, what, what, what are we going to do? And the pastor said, we aren't going to do anything. I'm going to stay right up under this chair and I'm going to groan and talk to God. That's what he did. So that evangelist gets back up. He says, deacons, would you please come down? Get us ready for communion. Nobody moved. But he said, he said there was a man got up in the back, started coming down that aisle and screamed and wailed. And he said, you'd have to go to hell to hear a man yell like that. He said he came down there to that altar struggling and stumbling. And he said, I swore I'd starve you out. And he threw a wad of hundred dollar bills at that pastor. Fell down in that altar and began to cry like he was passing gallstones and in pain. And one by one, the people in that church stood up and started walking down the aisle, kneeling in that altar and were just praying and repenting of their sins. Little girls that were up in the choir loft before and had been singing were standing up testifying that they all had been sleeping with the same boy in the church and they were asking for forgiveness. All of this was going on in the church. That pastor, he watched all this. That evangelist watched all this. Church didn't end after 2 o'clock, 2.30, without any announcements at all. That evening service was packed. People would come from everywhere. They were standing on the outside. And that evangelist said he got up to preach. And when he got up to preach, he had never seen it before, never seen it since. But he said it was like a cloud of God descended in that place. And he said everybody was filled with the Holy Spirit in that place. All because a man came and he preached but people didn't necessarily want to hear. Paul came to Ephesus and even the people who were practicing black magic brought their books out. What would you have to say to get people to reform their lives like that? What would God the Holy Ghost need to do in order for this to happen? Look at verses 24 through 27 in Acts 19. A certain man named Demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines for Diana and brought no small gain to the craftsmen. That's a good profit there. He called together the workmen of like occupation. That's his union. And he said, Serge, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. And you see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that there be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to become worthless or set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. So in the nutshell, people were becoming Christian. This was cutting into the bottom line. And, and these folks were thinking about the fact we're losing money. We're taking advantage of these folks' devotion and piety. 
They believe in our statuettes and our figurines and what we're creating with our hands. This man is telling us that what we're creating isn't even a God anymore. And now people aren't even coming into the marketplace to purchase the very thing that they need to worship. We've got to do something about this. Have you ever considered how much money is made in religion? I've been told, I don't know if it's true, I've been told that the bank at the Vatican might be the wealthiest bank on planet Earth. I wouldn't be surprised. But people make money off of folks' fears and people's devotion. When I first came into this region, there used to be a man that would show up at people's houses when they lost a loved one. And they'd say, look, your your loved one hasn't gone directly to heaven, hadn't gone to hell, but they're in purgatory. But if you give me a little bit of money, we can maybe get his leg out in the next six months. We can get his hips out if you just give a certain amount of money. There's money to be made in religion. The Muslims who pray the 99 names of God with their blue beads. They sit there at the little gates or outside of their stores and they they run the beads through their fingers and they pray those names. Somebody's making those beads. Somebody's making money. The stained glass windows that you see in many churches that have pictures of saints in them and people walk in and then they genuflect when they're going back and forth. They kneel down before them and they pray prayers to them. Somebody's making money off of that. Millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. This man here, he stirs up the people. Now notice in verse 28, it says the people were filled with wrath and they started crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now I don't know if we've ever seen that in this region. People so filled with anger regarding the offense of their religion that they just start shouting out that God's name. But you see it on television from time to time. You watch when the Muslim feast of Ashura takes place in Lebanon, in Iran, in Iraq. And they get out there and they cut their foreheads, let the blood run down, and thousands of them marching in the streets and they're shouting, Allahu Akbar, there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet and the blood is running down. And during that same time, they're burning down churches. You think about the Hindus that are over in India and how even today they're still burning down Christian villages, Christian homes, huts and churches. And they're marching through the streets saying that our religion is the only religion. They're even even attacking uh, uh, Muslims and even Buddhists. So the point is simple. There's an anger that rises up in paganism. It says, how dare you offend me and tell me that Jesus is the only way. Well, verse 29 says, with all of that taking place, the whole city was filled with confusion. When there's confusion, nobody knows what's going on, what's happening. Why is everybody doing this? What's all this fighting about? Why is everybody yelling and screaming, utterly confused? It's like the people you see sometimes that end up uh, marching in Washington or protesting in different places. And somebody asked, why are you out here? And then somebody said, look, I was paid $40 an hour to come get on the bus, ride to D.C., hold this placard, march back and forth and say, we don't like this. We don't like that. They don't have any feelings about it at all, but they were paid to show up. Utter confusion. This is what was taking place in Ephesus. And as you can see, every town, every village, every city is one man, one woman 
away from a revival. But every town, every village, every city is also one man, one woman away from a riot. One man named Demetrius stirred up all of this. And because of that, you can see that there's fighting in the streets, yelling and screaming, slander, accusations. But despite all of that, Paul still preaches the gospel. He doesn't change. Not at all. He, he doesn't change. You, you may be familiar with the uh, great awakening that occurred in Wales back in the 18th century. Well, 1714, Howell Harris was born, man of God, became a Christian at the age of 21, 1735. Wales was a dead place. They said sin was everywhere. The whole nation was asleep in their iniquity. You could find saloons that were filled at 4 a.m. in the morning all week long. But go to church. Buildings are empty. Beautiful buildings. Nobody was there. But Howell felt that God wanted him to learn the Bible. So he went to Oxford. Got to Oxford. Lasted one semester. He got there and saw that the people that were teaching divinity were drunkards. They didn't know God. He said, I, I don't want to waste my time here with a bunch of hypocrites that don't believe in God. He got to thinking about the preachers in his own region, the people in his own region, the family in his own region. After one semester at Oxford, he went back home, gathered people in the house, began to preach. Within a few months, the houses weren't big enough for him. Pretty soon, he's preaching outdoors. 5,000 people, 7,000 people, 10,000 people, 20,000 people. He was one of the peers of George Whitfield and John Wesley. This man, Howell Harris, he felt like his ministry was specifically restricted to Wales. He ventured to other parts of Great Britain, but his calling was to the Welsh people. And he ministered powerfully to these folks. It said out there in the streets and in the hills, these people would fall down screaming and yelling because of what he preached. His message was the wrath of God and your future judgment in facing that God. Now, can you even imagine somebody saying today that is the message they have from the Lord with all of what is taught today about how to be a minister and how to reach people and how to be a Christian witness. We're constantly giving people spoonfuls of sugar. But this man came out preaching the wrath of God is against you because of how you're living. When it's all over, this man is out preaching. He's got pistols being discharged at him. He's got people that are coming to kill him and his family. His own assistant minister was stoned to death because they were out preaching the gospel. But Howell Harris, for 17 years, traveled all around Wales and then finally settled down and for the next 17 or 20 years or so, pastored a church and still continued to preach Christ. What is it that we need in this region? What kind of a message do we need? What kind of a people does God want us to be? Does he want us to be a people of life? Does he want us to be a people of revival? Does he want us to be a people that loves him? Does he want us to experience an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Or are we so bound by the traditions of an area that we can never have God as he wants us to have him? These people heard Paul. Some of them believed. 
I can't imagine how difficult that must have been to turn their backs on grandma and grandpa's religion. To walk away from the Greek and Roman religion that they had known to embrace what Paul said. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? Have you been baptized? They said, we hadn't even heard. What, what is that? We had the John the Baptist baptism. He said, oh, no, that's, that's not enough. You've got to experience Christian baptism. Here's a man taking handkerchiefs, laying his hands on them. People are taking them home. Demon spirits are being cast out. And all of this coming from a man who visits a town where there's another goddess in religion. Yeah. How fervent and passionate are we? Are we truly dedicated to the book or are we dedicated to tradition, dedicated to religion? But if we ever can throw our hands up and say, God, I want more of you, you'll find the God that was in Ephesus is also the God right here in Therakon. Yeah, He's the same God right here in Hebron. And wherever we go, we'll find he's the same way. Amen. No doubt about it, folks. No doubt about it. We don't need to be merely religious. We need to have a relationship with the king. My prayer for all of us is that when anybody comes in contact with you, they'll come in contact with a Christian. They'll come in contact with somebody that knows God and that you'll never have to hang your head in shame when you have to talk to people about your faith. You can let them know what you believe about the king. Let's stand tonight. Find a song that you can put on for us or something to play there in the background.